So um, I've been gone for a while. I was here last week, but we had our friends Kitty Sar and Tanisara here from South Africa. And so they, they really led the group last week, and I just kind of sat in with them. Um, and since I've been gone for so long, I kind of like to check in when I get back, meaning I like to hear from you. What's up? What's happening? What kind of questions do you have? Concerns? So I like to do questions and answers when I get, get back to town. So I'd like you to take a minute and reflect or think or consider what, what, what if you have one question you get to ask, what would you like to ask? Or if there's something, what would be the most vital question you could ask for your own practice or for your own liberation? Or what's the cutting edge of your practice that you would like to learn more about? Or what's the most difficult part of your practice that you might have a question about? So, and the, the general rule of thumb here is everybody has to come up with one question. We probably won't get to all of them, but what happens is if nobody raises their hand, then I start calling on you anyways. <laughs> and so it's good if you're ready with a question. If you, and if you could stand, please, it'll help. Thank you. Sometimes I feel like I want to meditate more than a half an hour or 40 minutes. And um, it's kind of like, is that just me being lazy and wanting to just sort of watch my breathing and hang out in meditation? Or is it actually a good sign, a good thing? Is it okay? <laughs> what do you think? Um, I can go either way. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So the question is about wanting to sit for longer periods of time. Well, there's a few different ways we could think about it. One is, we're going to play with the pinging a little more, I can tell. Thanks, Jean-Paul. Um, meditation is a skill. And part of the skill, um, or one of the supports for the skill, can be sitting longer periods of time. So traditionally, if you sit with some of the Asian teachers, they'll actually have you do vow sittings. So you vow to sit and not to move for an hour, or two hours, or three hours. And there's something that one learns when one commits. And that's always true. That's always a really important or helpful way to think about it. When you make a commitment, it will always teach you something. And so one of the commitments you can make is in terms of time. And you could see what happens. See if you're just being lazy if you sit for an hour. Or see if you learn something more about the meditative process in an hour. Um, Part of the meditative process is learning to find our way in, the, in this inner uh, uh, experience, starting to learn the, the skills and the tools to stay present moment by moment 
whether it's just being with the breath or being with whatever the predominant experience is. And then once we learn how to do that, then there's something else that can happen as we learn how to stay very close to the moment. Remember, the now is always highly valued in contemplative circles. And it's highly valued in the meditative process. So what does it mean to stay in the now, not just for a moment or for a minute or for five minutes or ten minutes, but for half an hour, an hour? And the reason it's valued, the reason some teachers will say do vow sittings, is because it will um, force us to do two things to see where we're going away, where we're going away from now, where we're going away from the breath or the body or what's predominant. And then once we learn how to stay more present moment by moment, there's a deepening that happens with time. It's like a little bit like anything you do more intensively. You'll learn more about it. It will deepen. And in meditation, that that can mean a lot of different things, but one of the things it means is you'll re- learn how to refine your attention. Or, or let me maybe a, maybe a good way to put it is the surfing metaphor. You know, really learning. It's one thing to get up and fall down, get up and fall down on the surfboard, but when you really get up and can ride a wave for a while, that's a different experience. And then if you can really stay up for quite a while, you can start to really navigate the terrain and the, I don't even know what they call them, the curls or whatever it is of surfing. And it's the same in meditation. Something more starts to happen. And so, you know, you'll hear stories of people, you know, my teacher, I remember the first time I heard my teacher said he sat for 18 hours straight. And he said it was a really interesting experience to do that. Or another teacher of mine did um, 12 hours of standing meditation. You know, certain things happen when you do intensive practice like that that don't happen in 20 minutes. It's just, it's just how it is. It can happen in 20 minutes, but it's rare. It can happen more easily if you've done the 12 hours first. Because then the consciousness has a a knowing of the terrain, of knowing what's possible. And once we have a taste, then it's a little easier to go there. But even to sit for an hour, that's that's a substantial amount of time. And, And actually, I want to say, even to sit for 20 minutes is a substantial amount of time. But it's a little like going to the gym. If you're working, you know, you're starting out, you're doing 10 or 20 pounds. Well, that's really good at first. But if you want to get a little stronger, at some point you want to increase the weight. And so that depends what you want to do. If you want to just keep a certain tone, then you can stay at 10 or 20. If you want to bulk up a little or get stronger, then you want to do a little more. So the other thing you can pay attention to is um, what's your intention for sitting longer? You know, Is there something pleasurable happening in your 20 minutes? And then if there is, I would suggest really allow that pleasure to take you as deeply as possible into the meditative process. And that's a very wise use of pleasure in meditation. Um, I have this knot right here in my solar plexus sometimes. Uh-huh. And then I start wondering, well, if I meditate, will it get worse? It's not like I'm 
afraid of everything, wondering like how it might get worse if I so not in the solar plexus the concern if I meditate it'll get worse well it, it depends what your um, value is if your value is to you know just feel comfortable then maybe you'll stop meditating but if your value is to be with things as they are then a knot is just a knot and it's something to be with and we don't know what it's going to do it's true, we don't know it could get worse, you could have a knot in your solar plexus could get worse could get better, could stay the same could do all three right, get better for a while stay the same for a while, get worse for a while change part of the skill is learning how to be with uncomfortable sensations in a way where we're not um, or maybe it's better for me to say part of the skill is learning how to be with sensation so that we're not grasping for sensation and we're not pushing it away either that we learn to find um, a ground that's not based in everything being comfortable or pleasurable but also not being afraid of what's uncomfortable or difficult because that's going to be part of the terrain if you meditate doesn't matter and there are some skillful ways to work with a knot so if you're working with a knot in your solar plexus one skillful way is to breathe in it breathe into it, breathe around it stay present with it it may be the predominant experience when it's strong and then to be open to it also will mean that maybe there's some content. Maybe you'll be sitting with the knot and you realize you're pissed. Or you'll be sitting with the knot and you realize you got really tight because, you know, somebody rejected you or something. There'll actually be some understanding that'll come also. And then that'll be part of the meditation. There'll be some emotion or some feeling. Or maybe the knot will just dissolve totally and you'll start feeling pleasure there. And then you stay with the pleasure that might come. One of my friends once was sitting on a long retreat and he started having a very intense pain in his shin. And, and he's a very good meditator. and he's Staying with the pain in the shin, pain in the shin. But nothing wrong. He knows there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong. He's sitting and it's happening for a few days. He's having this intense pain in his shin. And all of a sudden he said it was like a vision. He had this image. He remembered running into a you know, a little faucet when he was a kid and smashing his his shin. And he said, and then he had the vision and then the pain just disappeared. And that was it. We're, we're very sensitive beings. And one of the things that can happen with meditation and will happen actually is we'll become more sensitive not less sensitive, more sensitive. And there are realms of experience that we will begin to touch that will become greater, not less. In relation to that, in a, in a way, I have a problem with chronic pain, which mm -hmm. then translates to fear, mm -hmm. which then makes me not want to sit. Okay, because good question. Because I don't want to 
So chronic pain that that then fear comes up and then don't want to sit because don't want to sit with the fear. So um, again, skillfulness is the key here. There's a skill to working with chronic pain. It's different than just you know a pain that happens because um, you fell down the day before or you know you're feeling sad that day. Uh, but chronic pain is its own. Um, um, cup of tea, let's say. Um, so, so many of the skillful um, uh, tools are applicable. Working with skillful pain means learning how to go towards it, learning how to open to it, learning how to make space around it, with it, breathe with it, stay present with it, but also to be skillful to know how to go away from it. How to go? How to leave it in a skillful way, and this is in the service of a of a of a more fundamental meditative value, which is balance. That it's very important to know how to keep our balance, or when we lose our balance, to recalibrate and find our balance again, as meditators. And with chronic pain, it's inevitable that you will lose your balance. It's it's inevitable. Chronic pain is really hard because it's so consistent. It's always going to be there. You're going to work with it ongoing. And at some point you'll get exhausted or tired or sick of it or reactive. And so it's important to include those skillfully, not judging yourself for those kind of reactions at all. Um, and so, so working, and this is true working with any intense pain, which is there's a skill to going towards it and there's a skill to going away from it at times, recalibrating our balance and then in the service of going towards it again later, even if it's a day later or a few days later. So you might feel the intensity of the pain, be with it, breathe with it, acknowledge it, know it, feel it, sense it. And then at times you might move back from the center of the pain, move to the find where the pain turns to not pain. Like if there's a pain in your back. If you start to look, if you start to feel and back off from the pain, there's some place where it starts to become more diffuse, less intense. There's some place in the body and you can hang out there for a while and you can come and go between the pain, the pain and the not pain part. And that's a skillful way to be with pain and especially chronic pain. Or another way to be with pain is to, let's say you have an intense pain in the knee, you're sitting cross-legged and you're having a lot of pain and the bell's not going to ring for another 45 minutes and you made a vow to sit for an hour, right? You know, how do, what do you do? So you be with the pain for a while, you be, it starts to feel too much, feel your whole body sitting for 30 seconds. And then, and then the pain is within a bigger context now. It's not just that you're staying in the middle of the pain. The body's a bigger context in which the pain is there, but there's something more that you're aware of. And you can begin to come and go as a way to stay balanced. So 30 seconds with the whole body, then 30 seconds with the pain. It's the same with the fear. So partly for you, it means at some point being mindful of fear. And the good news about fear 
You ready? It's just fear. It's it's an emotion. And we're not so used to being with our emotions when they're uncomfortable, when they're scary, when they're um, when they challenge our sense of self, our sense of everything being all right or together. And yet they're just emotions. They're workable is what I'm saying. And fear is a workable emotion. But it means you have to be willing to be afraid and feel what that's like. So one of the, one of the um, supports for that is just to be curious. What's it like? What's fear actually like? What scares you about fear? I'm not asking for an answer right now, but for you to, to bring more a little bit investigative quality of mindfulness. To be curious or interested in it. And see, okay, I'm going to spend a minute feeling fear. Just a, one minute. And then I'm going to go and go, you know, get a latte somewhere or whatever. I'm going to go watch a movie. I'm going to whatever. But for one minute, just to see what it's like to actually be with the fear. And then you can build on that. You know, first you do one pound, then three pounds, and five. You can build on that. And then you can actually sit with a lot of fear. And fear is a normal, human, animal emotion, feeling. It's not a bad thing. It's not a mistake. It's not horrible. It's nothing. It's not even a problem, actually, except when we believe it. Like we really believe. And I would imagine if you're working with chronic pain, the fear is it's going to be like this forever. And you're going to die. Well, if you die, then there's no more fear. <laughs> but that's the fear. Well, no, no, it's good. It's good to acknowledge what, what we're afraid of, too. You know? So then, because we think we're afraid we're going to die. Huh. I'm just trying to see. Are we really afraid we're going to die? Or are we afraid we can't live with the thought that we're going to die? You know, so it's it's good to really pay attention, really pay attention there, and it's a noble, noble uh, um, um, art to learn how to be with fear, or to be with any strong emotion, any intense emotion, because when we learn how to do that, there is a freedom that comes that nobody can give you, nobody can give you. It's why the some of the people we admire most. Um, it's not that they didn't have fear, whether it's Martin Luther King or the Tibetan nuns or monks who were imprisoned. I mean, it's not that they didn't have fear, but they knew that they could be with their fear. They knew their fear wasn't actually true. Even if the thing happened, even if the worst thing happened, it's not the fear itself. We're actually much better. Have you ever had that experience when the thing you're afraid of happens and you deal with it much better than you thought you would? The reality, our minds are what's afraid. The reality is that things are workable. Or not. But the fear is, you know, you know my story about the fear. 
this is it's kind of a fun story that I swam in the bay for many many years and and one time I, and every time I would swim I'd get out about a quarter mile and I'd start thinking about sharks I get a little afraid you know not afraid enough so that I would stop swimming but it would change my swim a little bit and and this is when I knew I knew that nobody's ever been bitten by a shark in the bay right it didn't matter to my mind my mind could can be a, you know our minds can be afraid of things that aren't real like everybody notice that like we make up stuff so here I am I'm worried about the sharks and you know but I keep swimming and then one day I'm out in the bay and all of a sudden I kind of turn around and there's this big sea lion about this far from me right he's about six feet from me big sea lion I'm I'm not big to begin with and they're big to begin with so and he's barking at me oh, 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 oh. And I can smell his breath, really. Not, he hadn't brushed that day. And, um, and I had this whole body fear. And this was not intellectual fear. This was not the fear of my mind making up of an idea. This was the fear of an animal who I was on his turf, right? And, and he was much bigger and faster and stronger and smellier than me. <laughs> And, and there was no place to go, right? Cause, so I'm there, and this all takes place like in slow motion a little bit, because it was that kind of fear, whole body fear. And then all of a sudden, I just thought, well, there's nothing, I didn't even think, but there was nothing to do, so I just stayed there. And, and the fear went away very quickly, like within 20 or 30 seconds, the fear went away. And I saw something that I didn't, I couldn't have, imagined, which was, he was afraid, right? He was afraid of me. I'd scared him. That's why he was up and barking at me. And then I just stayed there and then he barked a little more and then he just went like this. He went, Shh. and I went, you know, because he went under the water. I'm like, okay. And then I, and then my mind kicked in, the fear of my mind. I thought, oh, I need to swim in really quick. And I was, I was more than a quarter mile out at least. And, um, and, um, and then I thought about it. I thought, no, that's crazy. He's, he's so much faster than me. I don't need to swim in fast. Now, if he's going to do something, he'll do it. And then I went on with my swim. So fear is a very interesting phenomena. But it's definitely workable. In the back there. Um, I'm trying to figure out if this part of the answer. And a little louder if you can. I'm trying to figure out if I should stick with this thing or not. I'm not sure if I want to get over it or not. But uh, like in the last few weeks, certain people of a certain gender have acted in ways that I think are unacceptable to me and to my friends. Mm-hmm. Because it's they're not just like boyfriends or whatever. Mm-hmm. And we've done things that, and so, you know, of course we've been eyeing each other back and forth, so it's become this like bitter festival for the past week or so. Mm-hmm. Like really, really, really bitter, but then really angry, you know, mm-hmm. like, I want to act out, it's not right, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, can I just be having compassion? But I don't want to have compassion for them, because it's making me, because I don't, I just don't want to. No, it's not where you're at. And I'm like, I am also like, it's also protecting me. 
Right. So what? So everybody hear that? Okay. So so one of the key things um, that the only way meditation works is if we're authentic, if we're real. You can't be compassionate when you don't feel compassionate. I mean, you can you can fake it a little. That's okay. But if you really deny it to yourself, what's true? That, that's a disservice to yourself and, and really a disservice to the Dharma. The Dharma asks for what's true. You know, Dharma itself can be translated as the truth. And so the truth is, you're pissed off right now. Then the, then the, skillful, the skillfulness is to sit with the anger and let it rip. That's my motto. Let it rip. Let yourself feel it. Let it really... Let feel all the nuances of it, all the energy of it, all the force of it, all the strength of it. And, as, and the, what, what's possible here and what makes meditation such a, a beautiful art is the possibility of what's called transmutation or transformation, which is that there is something good in that energy. There's something good in the energy. And the anger may be a little bit of a distortion, but it may be the distortion that's needed right now. And as, you, as we sit with it, as we allow it, as we allow our energy, as we allow the reaction and feel it and stay with it and liberate it or let it self-liberate, what will come is clarity. And the clarity is an important part. And not only clarity, clarity, strength, boundaries, things that may be needed and appropriate for the situation you're describing. And then you may be able to say no or stop or this is wrong with a lot of love, actually. But not because you're trying to be loving, but because you're here in a very full way and then your heart will be here naturally. So does that make sense? Yeah, really important. You can't deny what's happening. Now, the, the trick about, about letting it rip is not denying it or suppressing it or repressing it, but also not acting out on it. And sometimes, for some people, for some of us, there may be a certain developmental phase where anger is hard for some people. It's hard for some people to feel their anger. It's for whatever reason, their conditioning, their families, people weren't allowed to get angry, sometimes culturally, sometimes gender, there's issues. Then it can be really helpful to find a, a, a place to express one's anger where you don't harm self or other. You know, so swimming in the bay is one of the great places <laughs> to get really angry while you're swimming. I can't, I'm a little embarrassed to tell you how I used to do this, but, but I did. Often I would do these swims <laughs> as a way to let, my, let the anger really rip and see what it was like to embody it. And, and I didn't hurt myself, I didn't hurt anybody else, and that was in support of, of learning how to sit with the fullness of it, of the energy. Okay. Um, let's see. Let's go here. Um, so I'm going to be fitting someone who's dying. I've taken on these shifts 
question is about um, being with somebody who's dying and you've volunteered to do some shifts 12 hour shift 10 to 10, 10 at night to 10 in the morning Are you, is it with an organization or is it with it's not, it's, I'm actually I'm being paid to do it somebody needs somebody to be with them right, right. okay so you're being paid have you ever been with somebody who's dying before yes. you have, okay good um, so what's the question? I just I just found out today. Yeah. And I was really distracted by it and it. Uh huh. What what were you distracted by? What what do you mean distracted? Were you feeling anxious or nervous or? I'm having there's a sense of feeling honored. Uh huh. There's a sense of a lot of anxiety and what if I okay let me just repeat what you know she was asked feels honored but also a lot of anxiety how am I going to do it stay awake at night you know how, plan, a lot of planning mind about it and I want I guess I want to do it with intention and I want to do it I want to be present. Uh-huh. So that's that's clear. I hope I hope you realize that already. You already have a, a certain kind of intention uh, and um, integrity about it. Otherwise, you wouldn't be thinking about it like this, right? It wouldn't be a concern if you didn't care about it. Um, how soon is the person expected to die? Do they know yet? I mean, they're saying. At any moment. And I guess he gets up in the night and this is why they want someone there. Uh huh. He's in a hospital. He gets up and he, he, gets, he gets anxious. He gets anxious. Okay. Uh huh. So um, the good news is there's no emergencies at this point. Right? He's dying. It's not a mistake, it's not, it's not a problem. It's actually pretty normal for most people. <laughs> right? Everybody get that? It's like a really normal thing to die? <laughs> it will be. <laughs> I promise you will not fail at it. <laughs> I have not met any human being who's failed to die yet <laughs> when it was their time. So, so and I really say that in a serious way. There's one of the beauties about, at least I thought, about hospice work is, oh, there's no emergencies anymore. There's just how to respond to what's needed. And, um, and you can't plan that. And, one of the, and so this is why it's actually encouraged in you know, m- many meditative circles to actually do some work with the dying. Because it's very much like medita- meditation. It's a, it's a relational meditation to be with people dying. Because you don't plan it and its key is being present. And make sure you take some cat naps during the night. You don't have to stay up all night. 
If he's sleeping, you can... Yeah, right. That was, she just bowed to me when I said that. <laughs> you don't have to stay up all night. If he's sleeping, it's okay if you sleep. That's fine. Um, you can relax. And you, you'll know what to do. Or there'll be times you won't know what to do and you'll learn what to do. And you can ask him. You know, if he gets up there tonight, well, what do you need? And I, at least when I worked with people who were dying, which I did for a number of years as a volunteer, I, I felt like, oh, it's, you know, once I learned to ask the person what they need, it got very easy. And then there were times when the person couldn't talk. They're really end stage and they couldn't talk. And, you know, you, you start to figure it out. It's like being with a baby. Babies don't talk. And, and as you spend some time with them, you get to, oh, now they have gas, and now they need some food, or now they need padding, or now they just need, you know, to be swaddled or cuddled or held or rocked or touched or not touched. And you'll, you'll experiment. I think the most important thing is to trust your heart. And that, that'll take you very far, both in working with somebody who's dying and in the meditative process itself. Welcome. Yeah. And you know, and then there's, then there's uh, the one nice thing about working within a hospice community is there's always backup. You can call somebody. So you might try to look around. How many people here have worked with Zen Hospice Project? Let me see. Raise your hands high. One, two, three. Okay, four of us. You know, you might check and see. Maybe you'll talk to somebody and say, oh, can I call you if I need some help? Or I just want to talk a little bit. Okay? So the questions about eating and being unmindful when you eat, and uh, and and uh, the issues that can come up around eating for people, um, and different people have different issues around food, or around sex, or around drugs, or around uh, work, or in certain kinds of compulsivities and habits that aren't so skillful. Um, so I think skill is one of the good words to use here, is how to be more skillful in terms of eating. 
have you ever? I can't remember if you've been on long retreats at all, or. So, how was your eating on retreat? It was great. It was great. So go back on retreat a little bit. <laughs> no, no. I mean, as a reminder, as a reminder to re- remember, you know, we've spent so many years in habitual action. Um, it takes a while to change habitual action. It's not easy to change our habits. You know, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And everybody wants to get enlightened, but we want to do it in a way that we recognize ourselves in some familiar way. And it's hard to let go of our familiar sense of self. And certain habits um, kind of um, uh, trick us into thinking we're this thing that we know that's familiar. You know, if we act in certain ways, oh, that's me. Right? I eat in certain ways, or I, you know, act in certain ways, or I'm an angry person, or I'm a this. It's actually not so easy to let go of those senses of self that seem so real, so true. And they, they are to some extent, they're, they're habit. Um, and so a few different things is really, I think one thing you can do is make eating your primary practice for six months or a year. And I, you know, I'm sure you've already done a lot of work or investigation in this area, but, but really to start practicing with it. Like instead of putting your altar in your room, your bedroom, put it on your kitchen table. You know, and that's the place to, to turn up the mindfulness, to really start to be aware of what happens, not when you start eating, but when you walk into the room. Like bow every time you walk into the kitchen for a meal. That, start it that way. To really numinize or sacredize that area of your life where there's a certain kind of habitual suffering and where you want to wake up. And you, you could do it anywhere. You know, for some people it's driving. You know, they get behind the real wheel of the car and they just go in automatic and turn into this like, you know, I don't know what to call it, road rager or whatever, you know, or, you know, I'm going to get there before you, whoever the you is, person. And, and it's very hard to be kind of mindful when you're driving. Um, so, so here's something. So um, practice without the food. Right? Set the table, go and sit down, lift up the utensils, put them down. Don't even have food there yet. Just see what it's like to stay present with yourself with the form. And then, of course, when you add the food, that'll add, an, add another level of complexity. And, and you can do this with the computer. Go sit down at the computer and type, but don't turn the computer on. See what it's like to be mindful at the computer without the complexity of actually having the computer on. Or the car. Go sit in the car in your driveway and, you know, like when you were a kid, you know, before you just pretend to drive, but see what it's like to be mindful there. And, and, it, and you know, because we don't have the forms like the monastic community has, 
that would limit your eating actually, right? You'd eat one meal a day or two meals tops and it would have to be given to you. So if somebody didn't give you, you wouldn't have much food. I mean, there are certain forms, those forms have their power. We as lay people, we don't have the forms. It's important to, to be creative, to start to create our own ways of working um, so that we can be mindful, we can be present everywhere in our life. And there are certain, we're going to all have strengths and weaknesses. And it's actually very skillful to acknowledge our weaknesses so we can highlight those and work with them. And then something like eating can be quite a liberating experience, quite a very powerful experience. Both liberating from the habit, but also liberating in terms of, of a deeper level of reality. Because any, any area of life is an opportunity to see deeply. We were talking a while ago about sitting with anger. Um, when I do that, I find that um, I get caught up in an argument in my head, mm-hmm. and it no longer feels like meditation. Mm-hmm. Right. Like a minute later, I'll remember, oh yeah, I'm meditating. Right. So the, he gets caught up in the, in the narrative, in the story, in the content. Remember, the content is only one part of an emotion. The, the part that where the juice is, is in the physical, somatic, energetic reality. And so you can let the story happen for a while, but come back to your body and keep coming back to your body. That's where the transmutation will happen. That's where the juice is. We want that energy. We want to free that energy. Okay? And it happens to me a lot that I will be watching my thoughts, being mindful, and then the bell rings, and I don't know where I've been at all. It just feels like there's been this space. I used to I think I used to fall asleep a little bit, you know. Now I don't think I'm asleep. It doesn't, you know, I don't feel that nodding feeling. But I don't know what, how to work with that. Uh, it's just a space. <laughs> uh-huh. So uh, um, there's some something happening in her practice. We're not sure what it is yet, and it often feels it feels like you don't know how to work with it. So one of the things you could keep an eye open for is space arising in your practice. You can begin to be mindful and aware of space itself. And it's actually a really nice thing when space arises. It's very relaxing. Very relaxing. So maybe there's not much happening and there's space. So you might just see, you might just be sitting there and you realize, oh, you don't know what's happening. I wonder if this is space. What, what am I actually experiencing? Oh, it's open. There's not much content. There's a sense of ease. It's almost like there's no boundary exactly, even though I know I'm sitting here. And then see what happens if, you, if that feels like space to you. And then be very willing to just stay there or sense into the space itself. Feel the space. Be the space. It's not a bad thing, space. 
it's not bad. It just doesn't feel aware. I mean, I it's like I'm not there. So uh, yeah. Well, you saying be aware. Is, is, there's this big gap. So you're not there, and there's this big gap. Uh -huh. So just be aware of the gap. Can you be aware of the gap? Actually, you don't have to be aware of the gap. Can awareness be aware of the gap? Because you, you're having a, some sense of something, right? There's something being known. Is that true or am I wrong here? Well, like I said, sometimes the bell rings and I... That maybe I am asleep. Uh -huh. Okay, maybe, maybe you're asleep. Yeah, I guess that's possible. That's possible. Also, you may be, you, you know, sometimes, um, again, like I said, there's various levels of consciousness. And sometimes things get refined and we're not used to being with the refinement or the subtlety or the simplicity or the... Yeah, the, the sublime quality of consciousness. So see if you can, if it gets quiet or if it gets, you know, somehow very simple, see what it's like to stay present there. So when it tries to stay aware of at least something. Yeah, stay aware of something. But don't, it doesn't have to be gross. It can be very, very simple very delicate, very ephemeral. Let your awareness be as delicate as whatever you're being aware of. Play around. Let's see what happens and then check in with me again. We'll see what we, we find. The back. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about incorporating uh, loving kindness meditation, loving kindness practice into your practice. So, how to incorporate loving kindness? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, do you do, do you, when you do it, do you do it sitting, meditating, or do you do separate practices? People, people do different things in terms of loving kindness practice, but I think the first way that I would like to suggest is be really loving and kind to yourself in whatever practice you're doing. In other words, the attitude of how we practice can be infused with loving kindness. And, and I think that's a really good thing. So even your mindfulness, mindfulness is not mindfulness. It's a bad word, mindfulness. Mindfulness includes heartfulness and bodyfulness. Make sure there's a heartfulness to your mindfulness practice. Then there's an, also the, the specific practices of loving-kindness which invoke or help uh, stimulate what's already there in our hearts. Um, uh, you could do some... You could take uh, a whole period and do loving-kindness practice, saying the phrases of loving-kindness, invoking beings that it's easy to feel loving kindness for to begin with. Or you can start a meditation by doing a few minutes of loving kindness and then go to mindfulness from there. And, or you could end. After doing a period of mindfulness, you could end with some loving kindness. I often do that personally. I'll do my practice and at the end I'll do a few minutes of loving kindness. A lot of different ways. Try something. 
you know, see what, you, what interests you, try it for a while, see if it works, and then um, customize from there. Okay. Last question. Yeah. Practicing with what? With depression. With depression. So you're aware you're aware of impermanence, and so it feels like what's the use? I'm aware of impermanence. Well, the way it comes to me is, oh, I'm going to die. Uh-huh. What's the use of doing anything? Uh-huh. Okay. And that's not the source of the depression. Right. That comes up with it, and then what's, what's the use of doing anything? Then I can barely get myself on the decision. Right. Okay. So, so the okay now. Um, the what's the use part let's just start there for a moment Um, um, the principle in Buddhism that really speaks to that is karma karma simply put means actions have consequences it means our actions have meaning really that it's not just what's the use that if you act in a certain way, it will bear certain fruits. Now, we don't know. It's not exactly linear, like you do A, then you get B. It's true, you do A and then you get B, but you don't know what B will look like exactly. Pardon? Or in which lifetime B will show up, right? Now, many of us in the West, don't, we don't do this lifetime thing. We do one lifetime or something like that. And, you know, uh, even that, that's fine, you know, if you want to just do one lifetime. <laughs> Although it's not, it's probably not true. But, um, but, um, um, but also, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And so, one of the things that um, depression can do, but not just depression, but a certain attitude Um, is that we presume to know what's going to happen and we have no idea what's going to happen we have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow actually I'm sorry I'm not saying it well we have lots of ideas about what's going to happen but we actually don't know what's going to happen and so um, that presumption is a false one that nothing matters because things do matter we matter. Life matters. Our actions matter. One of my teachers said when he first studied with his teacher, he said, well, what do I have to do to, to awaken? What do I have to believe to awaken? You know, because he was American and he was talking with his Asian teacher in, in Asia and he wanted to see, well, what's the belief here? Because he wasn't a believer, right? And his teacher said, you only have to believe one thing. You have to believe that actions have consequences 
And then it means the time you put in, the energy you put in, the skills you learn will have bear certain fruits. They have meaning then. Um, you know, depression's tricky. Maybe, maybe sometimes meditation is contraindicated at certain times in depression. You know, I think it's really important to look for what's the most skillful response at a specific time. It may be more skillful to take a brisk walk than to sit. Or maybe it means only sitting after a brisk walk when you're, med when you're depressed. You know, there's other, uh, other uh, skillful means for depression that I think are important to bring into play and then see where meditation fits right when that's happening. Remember, meditation isn't a cure-all for everything. Liberation is a cure-all. Meditation is not a cure-all. And actually, I don't, I do not even have to really think about that. Liberation is it a cure-all? Definitely, meditation is not a cure-all for everything. And we tend to, to to idealize it in a certain way that, you know, it's great. It's really it's amazing, beautiful. But it's there are lots of different skillful means. Meditation is one skillful means. And for depression, it may not always be the best skillful means. So that's something to consider. And I'm, I'm imagining you've seen the book Full Catastrophe Living. Yeah, and that's a good place to look. And I, I would imagine there's more books out now about meditation and um, um, different um, mental problems that we have, different emotional problems that we have. Um, but that's the one I know the best. So. So, as always, it's it's really great to be back here and be with you even on this nice warm night here in San Francisco. Um, I just want to say, um, it's great to have you back. Thank you. Thank you. Really, I'm happy that it's mutual. So let's sit for a minute before we end. gladly, freely offer the merit, the goodness, the blessings of our time here together. We offer them for the benefit of all beings. May any merit that we've accrued go out like ripples in water, touching beings in this world and every world. May all beings be happy and peaceful. And please, of course, include yourself when we make these well wishes. May all beings be free from suffering, from the suffering of war, and fear, hatred, of racism, of division of ignorance and confusion, of greed and avarice. May all beings, 
all beings everywhere be free from suffering. May all beings awaken. May we awaken together. May we realize our true nature, our Buddha nature, the nature of wisdom and compassion. <coughs> 